You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. So I want to welcome uh, Tom Myers. We're here to do a part two on conversations around the SOAS. And for those of you joining us, I'm Liz Cook. My website is Core Awareness. I'm the author of the SOAS book. And um, I've been working with and exploring somatic movement of the SOAS for 30 years. Tom Myers' is, uh, background is as a certified uh, advanced rolfer. He worked with Ida Rolf and Moshe Feldenkrais. And he um, is the author of Anatomy Trains, and it directs uh, kinesis and works all over the world and has worked over 30 years in different settings, uh, working with integration of the body through physical work. And I um, have invited him here to have a conversation. Our first conversation is part one, where we begin to look at our differences about how to work with the psoas and why we both take the attitudes that we do. And we found that there was a lot of collaboration on ideas around the psoas. So, so really, it's approach that seems to be one of um, our differences. So I wanted to kind of fine-tune that and also to cover some areas that, in part one, we introduced but didn't get to go to. So picking up some of the, the strings of our conversation. So welcome, Tom. Oh, thank you, Liz. It's great to have this opportunity, and always fun to speak with you. Thank you. And last time we got to do this in my house, and uh, so we got to look at each other and actually have a conversation. This time we're doing it over the phone, so um, our transitions may be a little more uh, awkward because we just have to stop and the other one has to pick up, so we won't have those eye-body uh, cues to... Uh, to no, work and I with. bet you aren't looking out over a field that's absolutely covered with a full yards, you know, worth of snow, three feet of snow, all over everything, everywhere. Oh, how gorgeous. That's happening in, in your Santa Cruz, California. <laughs> no, but you sat in my room, so I'm looking out over that beautiful, um, the garden, and it's a very gray sky here today, although we're, I think we're done with the rain, and spring is showing itself everywhere, so we're uh, getting... I love, it. <laughs> I love your house, I feel uh, great that you're there. Yeah, so we're I'm looking at I'm looking at the beginning of uh of spring happening here. So it it will come. 
It will return. Okay. Well, so. I'm, I'm I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. I'm going to Australia where it's already summertime, and I'll be there for a couple of weeks. So I'm glad we were able to get this in before that happens. Yeah, and and I'm following you to Australia. I'm going to be in Sydney and Melbourne for the first time, teaching in both places. So um, I'll be the follow-up act after you, and Great. You hopefully people will will connect with both of us. Yeah. If you can send me anything, I'm happy to put that out in my. Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I feel very privileged to to have your attention and time because, um, uh, besides myself, I think you know more about the psoas than than anybody, and certainly from the um, biomechanical anatomy aspect. I think you're, uh, you know, king of the psoas, and you've written lots of articles on the psoas um, in massage and body work. I was kind of taking a quick look over them today because they were the inspiration for me to write my article for massage and body work with um, David Bruselli, who's a international trauma recovery expert, um, and we took a very different stance on the psoas. So I feel like, you know, I've kind of trailed behind you, going. You know, I don't think you have to palpate the psoas directly. So last time we talked about a little bit about palpation, so I kind of want to finish that territory up in terms of um, a direct question to you, which is what is your intention? Uh, Well, just to frame it for people, hopefully everybody's listened to part one, but just to kind of frame it, we, we were talking last time about this idea that why is the psoas so different than any other tissue that you would directly palpate? You know, so what's what's so sacred about the psoas? So I'm kind of picking up that string because I feel like I'm not done. I'm not done saying what's so sacred about the psoas. Um, but so my direct question to you is: What is your intention when directly palpating the psoas? What what are you hoping you or your your students? Are, are doing? What are they doing? Okay, so my primary intention is to create a complete body image. My supposition is not the same as Eideroff's, maybe a little more close to Feldenkrais, uh, or, or Hannah, is this, if there are no areas of sensory motor amnesia, if you are fully cognizant of well, cognizant may not be the right word because it's not all in the upper consciousness, is it? It's, it's in that body consciousness. But if your body image is completely filled in, then you make the best decisions. You make those best decisions second by second when you slip on a banana peel, and you make those decisions better in big thing, big life decisions as well. If your body is fully present. Um, so my intention in touching the psoas is my same as my intention in touching the scalenes or the brachialis or anything else is that I want the person to have a complete body image. And so many people, this part of the body is lacking in terms of its image. And the image is not simply the image of the object itself. It's the image of the object in, in action, in motion. And... Uh, so we're, we're not only trying to fill in holes in the specular image, the image of the body itself, the kinesthetic body as perceived, but also as the, as the body in motion. And I don't think that in that that uh, I differ very much um, from what you're trying to do. So what, um, what I would say is, uh, is the difference for me is that I believe that, uh, or what I've observed, 
I kind of take a Chinese perspective on this. I, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, object versus process. Okay, so when we think of the psoas as object, or we think of the human as object, it's very different perception than if we think of it as if we think of ourselves as a process, as a living process. So I look at what is uh, what is not. What is the person expressing? Because I think all the the memory is there, and all the the uh, impulses are there, and and so I'm looking to evoke um, a a a resolution uh, because the psoas is associated with trauma, um, but also an awakening of longing and. And I find that um, I find that we'll get into birthing practices, but I find that that's part of the disruption. And you mentioned that uh, last time as well. But I guess from the the Chinese perspective, you know, they didn't need anatomy uh, to understand energy. And and I so, so I think I'm a person who works very energetic with these expressions rather than in the object oriented realm, which I think when you do a lot of uh, cadavers, it, I, I have this impression, and I don't work with cadavers, um, that when we're looking at that, it's easy to translate that into a human being, but that the human being is so much more complex than that tissue that well, we, can, I, we can understand. Let me, let me pick up on that right away, because when you're working with a cadaver, you're working not with a human being, you're working with a model of a human being. And worse than that, you're working of a model of that human being on their least viable day on the planet. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so yes, you, you you have to be very careful in transposing those things. And I and I I plead guilty to your charge, but not, but not because of working with cadavers. I think it's just that I've been steeped in the biomechanics, um, particularly postural biomechanics of the day, and um, that I am trying to put the what you're calling the object point of view and the process point of view somewhat on the same page so that those who are following behind us in the and I <laughs> make brave to say that following behind us in the in the physiotherapy and medical field can begin to understand the process point of view uh, because there's a stepping stone to it um, however I, I am going to plead guilty to the charge of, of having thought about the psoas in those kinds of biomechanical terms. Thank you. However, what do you mean by awakening longing? I've got to explain that a little bit more to me. Well, okay, because I'm working somatically. I'm not palpating. I'm not manipulating in any way, and I don't mean that in a negative term, but I'm not eliciting something on a physical, doing something to someone. I am, I am, I am, I am helping them reawaken uh, any any somatic lack uh, there of of that wholeness that you're referring to, um, and I don't even know if that's my intention. I think my intention is pleasure, um, to, to be quite frank. Um, but in in any case, when I'm when I'm exploring the psoas, what what my point is of why I think direct palpation or direct manipulation of the tissue. One of the things that came up in our last conversation, a response people had was, oh, you don't like, and, and I hear this from other people as well, oh, you don't like touch. 
And I go, no, I love touch. But I think there's levels to touch. And when you're actually touching psoas or close to touching psoas, you've got your hands pretty deep in somebody else's organism. And my, my, I contend that when you do that, you're actually evoking a response because the psoas is such a primal tissue that may not be as conducive as allowing someone to access that from the inside out or actually recognize that that is the only way we wake up is from the inside out. And that, and so I'm, I'm kind of looking at what, what evokes and when you, um, when a person has the space and field, uh, space meaning time and the field of support, they return to something that innately they had in the womb or before the womb that I would call wholeness. That, that seed even before we become uh, a, a fetus. And, and the cell itself is, a, you know, is the symbol of wholeness. So, so we all began whole. And so when we're in wholeness, there is a longing to become. As much as there's a longing or a desire to survive, there's a longing to, um, to innovate. So that's what I'm talking about, longing. A longing to innovate, to, to blossom, to open, to, to become all that you are. I just see it over and over again. People who are closed down, who open, and they just literally look like a flower to me. But you're, great, you're you're not going to get any argument from me on that whole process. I'm very much there as well. There was so much in the last paragraph that I would like to respond to. Starting with, we don't work on people; we work in people. I'll definitely take the um, accusation, if that's what it is, that we're working deeply within somebody when we work with the psoas. But I would say we're not working as deeply as people who work with the craniosacral pulse. A craniosacral therapist puts their hand on your head and know, uses five grams or less of pressure, and yet they can reach very deeply into the system and, and do more damage, um, in my opinion. Uh, they, they can do wonderful things, but uh, somebody who gets into the cranial system, they kind of come in under the radar. They're very deep in the body, and uh, that or a visceral manipulator can do some pretty um, incredibly wonderful or incredibly damaging things on somebody, and it's not a question of the heft of the touch. Right. Um, whereas if we're uh, working with somebody so as I absolutely grant you that people can do that with more or less sensitivity, but that would be true of your work, too. Um, people could do it with more or less uh, sensitivity. So we're only, uh, we're not arguing about creating the feeling of innovation or longing for reunion. I'm right there with you on that. We're just talking about what's an effective way to do that, and um, I like your way, but I also like touch, um, and and don't feel that there's any outlaw of touch on these very sensitive things. You just got to know what you're doing when you get there. I don't want a weekend wonder who's learned craniosacral therapy in four days from someplace we won't mention, and now puts them forth so forth as a professional in. Uh, craniofacial therapy. I want an osteopath who spent three or four years with this under the tutelage of people who really know their game mm-hmm. um, because I'm offering an incredibly delicate system, a system of membranes around my brain and my brain itself, 
and the spinal cord to their hands. And if I'm offering that system to their hands, and on top of that, the touch that they're using is so light that I really have no idea what they're doing, I really want to have faith that they are competent. And I, what I hear is that in the early days of this, you might have encountered a rolfer or encountered some of your clients who had encountered rolfers who were not working with that kind of sensitivity, who were plunging their hands in, uh, working the psoas as if it were not such a physiological muscle. And right there, I'm going to agree with you, too. I don't, I'm not in favor of that kind of work at all. Um, but I, I would still say to you, I think I said this last time, is what is it about the psoas that puts it out of bounds? for touch, if the gluteus is open for touch and the piriformis is open for touch, what makes the psoas so different from the rest of the uh, Yeah, I think, um, I think what I'm suggesting is not touch, but, um, and, and, I, I, and I think you're right, I have a strong reaction to what I've witnessed over the years um, from and still see today of people, well, let me put it another way. It's not only who works with the psoas and how they work. It's their mentality of why they're working in the way they do because there's that fix-it model. So that's part of my, my reaction is around the idea that you're going to fix someone. I think that's a top-down model no matter how you want to look at it. And I'm not opposed to have, I mean, I, I have body work. Um, I don't have as much as I used to, but I, I thoroughly, you know, love body work and, and, and being touched. So it has to do with why are we touching the psoas. And my feeling is that the indirectness, like, okay, so you're, you know, you're, you're working with the tensegrity system and you're working with fascial system, you can you can get a response, so to speak, or a a, a, a conversation or reading the psoas or whatever we're, we're trying to evoke, which is why I started with that question. It was, what is our intention here? It's why are we working with the psoas in the first place, except that it's part of, you know, the human tissue. We're not going into the brain. You know, we're not going into the blood, you know. So so why wouldn't we elicit, um, and how do we differentiate what we're eliciting in the psoas from a little bit further away than the direct palpation of that tissue? Why wouldn't we work with that which is what the psoas is messaging? So I guess that takes me to my idea that the psoas is a messenger, and as the messenger, don't shoot the messenger. The, the messenger is not the issue. The messenger is letting you know that there's a lack of integrity in the organism. You'll get no problem with me from that either. The, uh, the psoas and, and uh, to some extent the piriformis behind it are very much the result of the mechanical forces. And, and, and I'm just going to stick with biomechanics here for a moment. I think any part of the body, including the psoas, and I love your your image of the psoas as the, as the lower tongue of the spine. I'm probably not quoting you correctly, but I've been thinking about that a lot since you said it. Um, and and all of that poetry and all of that emotion, I'm glad to be there. But if I were just to look at the biomechanics of a human being, we have the same muscles and bones as most four-legged. We have most of the same muscles and bones as any four-legged creature, and 
have swept ourselves up so that we stand primarily on our hind legs, where most four-legged creatures stand on their foreleg, um, put most of their weight on their foreleg. And um, that's necessitated some very, very different biomechanics of the pelvis, and you really don't see very many dogs or deer with the kinds of low back problems that, that plague human beings. Whatever the sources of sitting or um, the, the rest of the things that we all know about that could be contributing to this. So when you swing the pelvis around, you are essentially extending the hip a very great deal. We, we, we live from day to day at this moment standing up. I am sitting with my hip more extended than my cat's like or my horse would like. Um, if, if you take an animal and swing them around into that position, put the femur in the same line as the spine, you'll, you'll get a nonverbal message from that animal uh, well before you reach the femur being in line with the spine that they don't like that and yet that's where we hang out. So I, I just do think, um, even if you don't like biomechanics, and I understand that you don't, um, that there's a substantial mechanical difference in how um, animal psoases work and how human psoases work, and how animal pelvis work and how human pelvis work and how animal spines work and how human spines work. And so the psoas to me is an essential part of that. It certainly also has all kinds of emotional and poetic and, um, what would be the word, allegorical meanings to it. Um, but I, but I, again, I don't think it's that much different from the rest of the body in that I find lots of allegorical meaning in the hamstring and uh, in the pectoralis minor muscle and uh, lots of emotions stored in the butt and on the inside of the legs. It's not unique to the psoas, so I'm, I'm still wondering why the psoas is, is, gets this very special treatment in your mind. Um, I think it gets a special treatment, is be, and I, and I, I want to correct that. I, I'm not opposed to the mechanical, biomechanical motto. It's certainly the only one I knew for a long time. But when I kept trying to understand the psoas, I recognized um, that it didn't fit in that compartment. And it, and it didn't sit right with the biomechanical framework of a human organism as an object. And, and so the mechanical conversation for me, if you really want to understand the psoas, um, and, and I'm pretty sure that you have to leave that model. Um, I'm just pretty confident after 30 years. So you have to leave the model and open up to a larger model um, I like the, um, you know, and I'm not an embryologist, but I like the embryo, uh, embryolo embryological model because it, it, it gives us a motif of understanding this tissue as process. As, um, and so in that dynamic, and, and you know, we're, we're talking about someone else doing something to someone. We're working with the idea that someone is, as a therapist, trained to help relieve someone's low back pain or open their hip sockets or whatever it is that they come to. But when I see a person, I recognize that they're in a process already and I'm interested in going with that process. So I'm working differently and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do both or that both aren't significant. But when it comes to the psoas, if we look at it only in the mechanical model, um, and, and it, 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 there's a slight inference that emotions or, or the poetic part of it isn't significant. But I think if we, if we stick 
It's like our poetry about, you know, the sun setting. As long as we keep thinking the sun is setting, we don't actually understand what we're doing here in the universe. So if we hold a mechanical model of the psoas as something, then we keep treating it uh, as if it's, it needs something because the system is standing up in gravity. But, you know, the psoas has evolved to a, in response to the fact that we stood up. And you could say we stood up because we could reach the fruit that was higher in the tree. You could say we stood up because it put more sensation through our genitals, which was pleasurable. And we got a feeling of rebound and, and ground force reaction that we liked through the pelvis or through the core or it awoke something in the brain. Uh, you know, I don't know. But, um, but I think we need a different motif if we're going to understand this res- the psoas as process rather than the psoas as object. I guess that's my... I don't know if I'm being clear about that. But. No, no, you're being perfectly clear. The, the, um, there are just a couple of presumptions um, okay. that when somebody comes in, it, you, you imply that you are um, cognizant of the process that the client's going through when, that they, when they come in and that anybody working with the biomechanical model is not, and I would contend with that for starters. Um, and secondly, that... Uh, you, you used again this locution that you're going to do something to somebody, and we don't do that. We don't. If somebody is working that way, they're not in my part of the conversation. I don't. I'm not interested in doing things to people. Um, so that if I put my hand on somebody's psoas or near somebody's psoas, because you can't actually touch it, of course, it's underneath layers and layers and layers of tissue. Um, but if if you put it. Wait. Let me stop you right there. Let me stop you just before you go on to that thought. There's a difference if you put your hand near the psoas versus on the psoas. And people do put their hand on the psoas. So that's a good clarification that I need to mention, which means people dig into someone's physical body. They have to. They have to either use a trigger point. They can't, they, can't, they can't do that. Uh, I mean, you, the sternocleidomastoid you can pick up, and it's quite near the surface. But you can't get through to the psoas without going through three layers of abdominal muscle and associated fascia. And organs. And, and then the other side of the peritoneum before you get even to the fascia on the outside of the psoas. I, I'm, I'm saying that the psoas is, is removed more than most um, from your direct touch. Yes, okay, so that's, that's really my point. And I have to say that there are people who try really hard to directly work with the psoas by moving, moving fascia and organs and arteries out of the way. I mean, because yeah. I, I see those well, I people. I recognize this, that my position in this, in this conversation is representing lots of different manipulators, but I, uh, some of whom do work from the top-down model, some of whom do work on people, and I just would have to say that... Um, at that point, you and I would sit on exactly the same side of the table because uh, I'm not in favor of that. That's not what I teach. And uh, any time that I'm putting my hands into the body, and certainly the, the students that I'm teaching, the person is moving. So we're stopping short of digging into tissues, and we're asking the person to move. And um, let me let me go back to my biomechanical model here uh, to the extent that between the iliacus muscle and the psoas muscle is um, a distinct and strong piece of fascia called the iliacus fascia or iliac fascia. Um, 
it is. I've observed it in a number of cadavers, both fresh and, and preserved, and you can feel it on lots of people. And the more it gets, if, if somebody is sitting in a retracted, pelvically retracted position for a good deal of time, that fascia knits up tight. And since the that's knitting the iliacus and the psoas together, and since the iliacus cannot pull away from the hip bone because it's um, attached to that whole inside fossa of the, of the hip bone, it tends to pull the psoas away from the back and interrupts the flow um, if from your side or the biomechanics from my side. But in any case, there's a big interruption there. Okay. And um, I'm sure... That there, I haven't seen them yet. I must say, I'm sure that there are exercises that you could devise, um, or movements that you could devise, that would separate the iliacus from the psoas. I must say that I feel, um, on the basis of my years of work, that if you give me even a few minutes, um, or a few minutes for a couple of sessions, um, to melt, and I use that word strongly to melt that fascia in conjunction with the person moving so that I can feel when the psoas moves and when the iliacus moves so that I can feel them moving separately, that I can bring that back to a place where they would be ready to explore with you sooner than if they just do this all by exercise. Um, and I'm sure you must have, over the years, had frustrations with trying to get people to feel this uh, area of the body and because of sensory motor amnesia, they are reluctant or are unable to feel it. And again, touch is a quick, quicker way, in my mind, to help people contact their inner space. So in, in summary, I would say that if you um, give me somebody who has such an adhesion, so I would call it, um, can frequently come on the right side as a result of a bad appendectomy, it can uh, come as a result of endometriosis, it can come as a result of simply standing with a retracted pelvis for a long time, um, that in a few minutes of work, say with several succession um, sessions, a few minutes work in each session, and with those with the, the client moving their leg and making the movement through the tissue rather than me poking into the tissues and trying to make it move, that I can hand you back somebody who is ready to explore, ready to awaken that feeling of longing, and won't require so much of you to um, get the tissue loose and, and ready to move. Great. Let's work together. I like it. <laughs> you won me over. I'm a fan. <laughs> Where do I sign up? <laughs> oh, me too. I'll sign up for yours. Sounds perfect. Well, I, what I'm hearing is that I mean, just when you mentioned movement, you know, I think we're we're looking we're we're uh, parting the water, so to speak, between uh, the way you're approaching uh, the human organism and maybe an older model that is still being implemented today. Of as we said, a kind of fix it top down. I mean, I get to see all the people who've already been manipulated and who are. Uh, kind of feel like they've gone through, not always they understand, but the feedback to me is like when I say, you know, in a way, they, uh, the the person you're working with is colluding a reenactment with, uh, with a trauma. I am in other I words, absolutely with that, and 
I plead guilty to having done that earlier in my life. I think it's a legacy of Ida Roth that's an unfortunate legacy. Um, and I'm, I'm really in agreement with you there. But I would say that there are three models of, well, if you're working with somebody else, we really fall into three models. Um, and if I were to take um, manipulation, there's when I first came into this, there was the relaxational model. And that's still around. You go to a body worker, they massage you, you might as well leave your body there. Um, you know, go away for an hour and come back and pick it up, and it it's much feels much better when you get there, but a week later you're back in the same position because you haven't really done anything about the stress except to relax the muscles, but the nervous system puts the stress right back in there. Um, and over the years from the 1970s, when I first started in that model, then came the second model, which is the remedial model, which is the fix-it model, which is the same as the doctor model. Um, in the first model, I'm sorry, going back to that first model, you're really the, the, the massage therapist is your servant. You're asking them for a service, and you come in, and, and they do their service, and, and you walk away. So in a way, the body worker is your servant. But when you go for the fix-it model, the body worker is your doctor. So it's still a top-down model, but now the practitioner is on top and the client's underneath. Um, and you come in and you have something-something uh, in your shoulder, and because of my expertise, I say, oh, yes, that's an uh, impinged supraspinatus tendon, and let me show you what I do about that. Um, but I'm the expert, and you're the schlub that I'm going to fix, and that is a model that the whole medical system works on, and many massage therapists, including medical massage therapists and um, NMT people and other people have picked up on that model, and they do it uh, well or they do it badly. But there's a third model, which I think we're both working from, which is the integrative model, which is you as a client come with your strengths and your weaknesses and your dreams, and I come as a practitioner with my strengths and my weaknesses and my dreams, and um, you pay me because the attention is on you. So it's incumbent upon me to put myself out of the way as a practitioner and to enter into your world, and therefore I get paid. But it's not because I'm more important than you or that I know more than you, or and I certainly don't know more about you, about your insides than you know. You know more about your insides than I do. So um, the question is, what can I do to elicit something new, something novel, uh, from your insides? But that's a collegial, integrative relationship, not a top-down relationship. I agree. That's a beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you. So let's switch gears and move to um, a couple other areas. One of great. the areas... What? Go ahead. No, no. Great. Let's do that. Okay. Um, is... Um, <sighs> well, I want to make sure we cover the pelvis. So let's go there. You had mentioned uh, in the first one... Uh, about the pelvis. And one of the things that I see and I would love to pick your brain about is what I think the psoas communicates a, a great deal of and is engaged in, uh, a, is actively engaged in, is a response from dis, uh, a lack of sacroiliac joint integrity. So that the whole, uh, what I would call midline or even maybe central nervous system, is disrupted through uh, whether it's injury or intentional stretching. I, I work with so many young people who have a, a dysfunctional pelvis because of the 
uh, lack of integrity of the sacroiliac joints. And therefore, they have psoas problems. Um, I'm only going to have problems with the, and therefore they have psoas problems. I wonder if it hasn't gone the other way. Well, I, I personally think, uh, from watching people, that the moment they regain a skeletal integrity, and what I mean by that is proprioceptively, okay, I'm, I'm thinking proprioceptively here, that when are the, the, uh, when gravity, when, when a person feels their center of gravity and, and as a, uh, a location, maybe you could say, or a, a, a place of organization, or just uh, fire in your belly. I'm not sure, you know, what terminology may express what I'm speaking about. Uh, there is an in integrity of a sense of both gravity as weight, but also as rebound or ground force reaction. And and so in that dynamic, the psoas is 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 free to not is I, I think of the psoas as being more neutral in 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 that expression, and when that is disrupted, then I see the psoas have to basically, uh, in its response in its primal uh, sympathetic response of um, fight and flight and freeze or tend and mend or whatever you want to express it as it's the fear response is activated because. Let's face it, if we're not integral, then, you know, we can, we can trip, we can be called, we can, uh, you know, we can be eaten. So, so there's this kind of primal response in the psoas when that is disrupted. So that's... So any, any fear of falling yes. activates that. Like. Right, or the fear of falling, you could say, is part of the expression of the psoas. Mm-hmm. You know, so because because that that response is to roll you up and to to make you more resilient and to right. And in my world, all fear of failure is fundamentally on a bodily level a fear of falling. So that fear of failure, which is so ubiquitous in our society, often ends up being accumulated tension in the psoas complex. So I actually think of the the sense of falling or that lack of integrity as the psoas. Okay. In other words, it's the to me it's reflecting or that what's what I'm calling a messenger of the midline. It's it is that primal primal response. I mean, it literally translates that primal response. Mm-hmm. So when you're calling it a messenger of the midline, it's a messenger to whom? To whom is the message sent? I think as a messenger, it. Uh, it evokes an expression in the organism. And if there is consciousness in the organism, then then we also get to hear the message, so to speak. Otherwise, the message is to run, to jump, to curl up, to, um, to hide, to freeze. You know, it's a... Um, you're either safe or you're not safe. I think the organism... I think I talk a lot about the organism... To keep it really simple, like a caterpillar, mm-hmm. you know, I think of it very primal, the the very core of what you call maybe the neuro core, as very primal and very simple because it's it's nonverbal. And then what the cortex I think gets to do, as as we have this level of self awareness, is we get to turn that towards 
the 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 this primal response in the nervous system or in that in our cells and we get to actually reflect on it we get to learn from it we get to to participate by um recognizing ways that we can support ourselves and we become more self-aware so that's kind of that human potential we both spoke about as being vital or important makes sense to me what do you think about SI joints how do you how do you work with people who have um on a very functional level how do you work with people who have um overstretched their SI joints from maybe a yoga practice that was yep. not well attended. Mm-hmm. Um, or... I think it's, very, it's actually very, very hard to do a yoga practice that's happening in a class and attend to such things. I think it's hard for the teacher to see these things and, and hard for the students to feel them in advance. Um, I, I think it really is a limitation of, of these classes of yoga that I see. Um, I, do, I do too. And the lack of and the lack of the lack of knowledge is also part of it, and yep. also, like you said, the size of the classes and uh, yep. everybody's doing stuff before they're really ready to do them. Exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so SI joints always come in twos, and very often, if one is overstretched and hypermobile, the other one is hypomobile, um, and. Often it's the one that's hypermobile that is hurting. And so I address each one of these, uh, not locally, but globally, in terms of how is, I'm going to speak in the biomechanical way now, uh, how is the force coming up from the feet? So very often one foot um, where the arch is pronated, where the arch has fallen in, is going to change the stresses up the line to the SI joint. Um, what you want is a bit of motion between the sacrum, and this would, this is a long lecture um, to lay it all out there. But you want a, a bit of motion between the sacrum and the and the ilium on each side. And if you've got none, um, it can only side bend. Uh, the, the whole pelvis can only side bend. But if you've got that motion in the SI joint, there's this bit of rotation and anterior posterior tilt between the anomena and the and the sacrum, which seems to be about like a motor mount in a in a car engine that takes the that ground reaction force and distributes it well um, as opposed to delivering it as a short sharp shock to the to the lower spine and um, so I am looking globally to get that to work but if you want to bring it into the pelvis um, I am not of the school of Paul Hodges of um, Australia who's done all this wonderful work on the transversus abdominis and sacral multifidus as the stabilization for the SI joint. Um, that may work for stabilization, but that's not the way the SI joint works. The mm-hmm. reason the SI joint is capable of being still and capable of moving is it should be still on the side that you're standing on and moving on the side that's swinging forward. I'm talking about walking now. So that it should go solid like less than 52 milliseconds after heel strike and... Um, then it should loosen again at the moment that your heel peels off the ground in in, uh, getting ready for that next step. And when that's not working, you're going to have a hitch in your get-along. You're going to be unbalanced from one side to the other. So I'm really focused usually on the side that isn't moving 
not on the side that's moving too much. Right. Because if I can get the side that's not moving to move a little bit, then the other one will calm down. And if it doesn't, I'm looking for that psoas piriformis balance because uh, I'm really not so interested in the transversus abdominis uh, sacral multifidus. I'm really more interested in the dynamic balance between what the psoas and the piriformis are doing in allowing those joints to move with every step. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, so so I find that for people who have psoas issues, um, you you know, the 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 I often look at what's going on in the pelvis and where the movement is happening. And some of it, I think, is proprioceptive that people, um, whether it's through uh, sitting, uh, not on the sits bones, um, but rather slightly behind, um, engages the psoas in a way that, that I think dries, that dries the psoas. So I'm, I'm looking at a dynamic in which I see... Um, I see that you know people uh, end up with psoas problems that I actually think are are very I want to say easily uh, solved sometimes by simply where they're sitting, where weight is being distributed on the pelvis, oh, and also and then a waking up of the bug, ball and socket. too. People sitting on the back side of their sit bones is just annoying the hell out of me. At the I know that's a it's a real I'm big issue like, for me. I'm being like an old <laughs> posture teacher in my classes because these kids. Uh, especially if they're tall, they come in, they sit down in the classroom chair, and they're lying down in their pelvis. They're almost sitting on their tailbone. I wonder if that has to do with having been, uh, you know, uh, the the new generation of babies who come into the world and are put in plastic containers um, and and are moved from one plastic container to the next, you know. The plastic oh, container good, moves them around. That's it's that's kind of like reinventing that, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, that's going to take us to birth. And, yeah, uh, it is. And we only have a, a little bit, so I do want to cover birth because it goes back to that idea. I, one of the things I've been working with right now that I find um, very exciting is some of the uh, kind of uh, early developmental uh explorations, I guess you would call them, of eliciting something that's a very early response. And one of them is a firing in the belly core that I think brings a lot of integrity. And um, I realized you had mentioned, you know, that babies are coming in and they're not getting touched in there or they're they're not proprioceptively uh, uh, or kinesthetically very aware and I would agree with you there and I, I am starting to feel strongly that what's happening with the planned cesareans and the induced labors about really getting that firing in the belly uh, that seems to come from the pushing of the baby against as it, uh, the, the wall of the uterus and what it does to elicit a healthy psoas. I wondered if you had anything to add or say or contradict or whatever. Uh, no, I'm just thinking about it because that's, that's I hadn't thought about the development of the psoas in the actual pushing. As long mm-hmm. as the baby isn't breech, um, then if it was in the standard position, then um, the uterus is pushing against it and it's pushing back against the uterus. Yeah, and there's a the conversation. Is not, yeah, the psoas is not nearly as strong as it will be. Um, and 
the bones are not ossified in the way that they will be. So uh, they say that hiccuping, for instance, is how your diaphragm practices for breathing because you don't breathe in the womb. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're breathing the amniotic fluid in and out of your lungs turns out to be a misnomer. That the lungs are folded flat all during um, your womb time, and they don't open until you suddenly come out at the bottom of this very deep air ocean that we live in, um, and the air is pushed into your lungs. But but in the womb, you, you don't breathe in and out, so the idea is mm. that hiccups are, are a way of practicing that. So what you're suggesting is that pushing with your arms and legs um, well, specifically with your legs and back here. Your legs and your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would be a chance to, um, both Both of those would exercise the psoas. If, if you pushed with your head, you'd have to stabilize the other side of your spine. So um, the psoas would be, be exercised in both in both ways. Uh, so that's an interesting idea. The general idea is that how are babies supposed to unfold into their movement versus how they are unfolding into their movement, and certainly a cesarean section is a a very unnatural, I'm not against cesarean sections when they're necessary, um, but they're getting more and more elective in this country and in, in Brazil. I'm told that it's a sign of, of economic hardship to have a vaginal birth, that anybody who can has an elective C-section. And I don't know, it, it will be interesting to see what that generation of Brazilians is like um, mm-hmm. without the... Uh, um, squeezing through the birth canal, which is a very, very important thing chemically. Um, yes. And it doesn't, you know, it count. It doesn't count. It just counts for these induced. Um, it doesn't count if the woman's gone through some labor because that squeezes the brown fat, and the brown fat is full of noradrenaline, and the noradrenaline gets the baby ready for the outside world. And so, if you've been partially through labor and then decide that it's placenta previa or shoulder dystocia or I don't know what, and you're going to do a C-section, that's one thing. But an elective C-section, the baby never gets any of that squeezing, then any of that stimulation, any of that proprioceptive. Um, well, it's, it's posited to be the equivalent of what every other mammal does, which is to lick its baby when it comes out. Um, right, what we no, call the no hormones of love. Squeeze through the vaginal canal the way we are, but all other mammals lick their babies um, when they come out, and that licking provides that kind of proprioceptive stimulation to get things started. And then, you know, once we get through the first day, I can I can really go on and on about birth for a long time. You know, the babies should be bonded with mothers. It's, uh, uh, they should not be taking the baby away. You should not be cutting the cord in the first 15 seconds. Uh, these are absolutely essential chemical setting points for the baby and emotional setting points for the baby. Um, but if you talk chemistry, then the scientists listen to you. Um, but these are... are such important bonding points, and if we take them away, we are inventing a society um, that bases itself on credit cards instead of basing itself on relationships. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a a powerful response to that integrity, um, and and I find working with these very simple um, r- responses. I, I don't, I'm hesitant to use the word reflex because I've been told by some people that a reflex is is more specific, but this idea of what I call uh, startle and fetal. When I play with those in movement, in in a proprioceptive dynamic, you see the organism take on a life of its own and what I would call be moved from the inside. So going back to that concept of longing, 
what I see begin to happen is that rather than we move, which is a kind of the idea of the mechanical model, is that we are moved, and just like we are breathed rather than we breathe. Um, there's something elicited from the inside that is activated um, that has an integrity to it. So, for an example, when I have worked with this firing in the belly core with the psoas, um, a, a person will stand up, and the first words out of their mouth will be something like, I belong here. And they're kind of surprised to hear them say, you know, I mean, it's like they're surprised to them, it's, you know, surprised to us, but there's a way in which we, I think going back to your original idea of inhabiting or um, having a, a wholeness, it emerges. Well, I think those are the things that if people miss them when they're very young, this is where I want to sign up for your course, because if you can elicit this kind of thing, um, this is absolutely wonderful, and it's the most economical way to do it, is if you can elicit those responses. Uh, and the most economical way of all is if you can elicit those responses when the organism is ready for them. Uh, if I try to learn Japanese now, I'm going to learn it with a different part of my brain than if I had learned Japanese when I was two or three. Even if I was also learning English, you, you, you take in languages with a different part of your brain. So maybe this fire in the belly that you're talking about, which um, is a very potent image for me, I understand that intuitively and completely, um, maybe that fire in the belly is supposed to occur at age two or three, and it's good when it occurs at age 40, but it would be better still for the organism if it occurred at the time when that kind of thing is supposed to be awakened. Um, so that talks to us not as therapists or adult educators, but um, how do we how do we educate our children from the get go, and that, which means educating parents about educating children. Right, which is a passion of mine, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's a passion of yours. Yes, and and Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen and uh, has specific things to say about this, and Emily Conrad certainly refers to this, and Karen yeah. Pose, Andrea Olson. Lots of people thinking about movement refer back to the fundamental responses, but we have yet to have a real map of, of when these things, what these things are, and when they're supposed to occur. Um, mm-hmm, the natural unfolding. The natural unfolding, and you know, it's, there's another problem. It may not be the time to get into this at the end of this conversation, but uh, is the natural unfolding still appropriate? In the 21st century, we're unfolding not into a Neolithic world of campfires and hunting, but we're alert, merging into an electronic world of iPhones and, and uh, Skype. So um, it's hard to tell what's going to be appropriate for these kids, but it's it's hard for me to think. Uh, you have to place your bet somewhere, and my bet is on these fundamental reactions of human beings ought to be uh, awakened in our in our children, and certainly if we get somebody who's suffering, that they have to be awakened at whatever age the person is when they come to us. Well, I think uh, I think that um, uh, uh, the the book um, that the mind of the unborn child. Um, I can't think of the author right this second. Thomas Gurney. The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. No, Secret not that of... one. Uh, no. David uh, David Chamberlain, uh-huh. who is the a perinatal. 
psychologist who developed yep. the graduate program for perinatal psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I have had the opportunity of spending some time together, and he was very inspiring from the point of view to remind people that that sense of wholeness that is in the cell, that is in pre, pre-womb, is actually inherently part of uh, within us. And so we can access wholeness no matter what the storyline happened between that and, and right now, whatever age we are. And so um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very hopeful model. I, one of the reasons I, I like um, shifting models be, is because sometimes the biomechanical, you know, people come and say, do I need to learn to live with this? For the rest of my life, or is this, you know, is this ever going to be able to change? And my response is always, as long as long as your cells are still still moving, as long as you know there's breath in the organism, uh, change is is you know potentially always there. Yeah, yeah and, no, and I would I would agree with that, and I I like your your relation of David's story. Yeah, yeah. So this sense of wholeness is inherent within us, and and how that's going to unfold into the the field that it's in is what I see. Is not so much is it still appropriate, but how is it going to unfold in a field of you know electromagnetic waves or you know the the shifts and changes of the organism? We're still on the earth, and the earth is a is a is a biorhythm. Is a you know we're we're not on the earth. We are the earth. So I kind of see. That as a bio system, we're we're still in that field, you know. We're but we're being influenced by a larger electromagnetic field now. That's you know is going to shape us for sure. And I don't know what that's going to all look like. Well, I guess I'll find out a little bit. I more. guess we'll find out, won't we? Maybe <laughs> our kids from somewhere. Will, and our grandkids will teach us. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be around for the big change, but we'll see. Well, thank you so much. It was fun to talk to you again. Great. And I hope our recording is survives these these downfalls of Skype and uh, that it all comes through and we can piece it together. All right. Well, let me let me know when you do because we'll stick it up. Okay. Great. And have a, a safe journey.